Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to James chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 to 20 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting a new book, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. The book of James is like no other book of the New Testament. In fact, it reads more like a book of the Old Testament. James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I think that's a very helpful comparison. I think what people mean by that comparison is that James is filled with wisdom and instruction about how to live as a follower of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The epistle of James has also been called the Amos of the New Testament, as per A.M. Hunter, because of its emphasis on justice, mercy, and right living as a Christian. However, to point out these similarities with the Old Testament is certainly not to suggest that the book of James doesn't belong in the New Testament. It does. James is a distinctly Christian work. He introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is writing to people who are followers of Christ, and his emphasis in the letter is on how people should live after having been saved by grace through faith in Christ. He's not telling people how to get saved. He's telling people how to live as saved people. As Christians, of course, we need to remember that there is such a thing as right belief and there is such a thing as right behavior. Both are very important. Of course, they're not the same thing, but they're both integral to any proper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't just say, believe in me. He also said, follow me. And James puts the emphasis on what it means to live and behave like Jesus. And I think that makes a certain amount of sense, given who we believe James was. There are three people named James in the New Testament who could be considered candidates for the James of this letter. There's James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. We meet them, of course, all the time in the Gospels. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. And then there's James, the brother of Jesus and the son of Mary and Joseph. This James, the brother of Jesus, is the James that history generally associates with this letter. He would have been Jesus' younger brother, Mary and Joseph, coming together as husband and wife in the normal way after the birth of Jesus. Now, he was not a believer in Jesus during uh, his earthly ministry, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection, at which point, presumably, he became a believer and a disciple. He very shortly thereafter appears as the leader of the Jerusalem church. He appears to have been the chairperson of the first ever church council mentioned in Acts 15. While it is possible, I suppose, to suggest that this letter could have been written by another James, J. Alec Machir 
puts it well when he says, what James do we know of in the New Testament after the death of the son of Zebedee, the apostle James, who could simply sign his letter James and expect everyone to know who was meant? None but James, son of Joseph and Mary, brother of the Lord, closed quote. I think that is almost certainly true. And therefore, I think it is best to assume that we are reading the counsel of the Lord's own brother, the younger son of Mary and Joseph. Now, the fact that there is no mention of the Jerusalem council in this letter, which took place around AD 48, leads many to conclude that this letter must have been written before the council. Otherwise, James would certainly have referred to some of the decisions that were made there. If that logic holds, and I think it does, then this letter is very old, one of the oldest, maybe the oldest in the New Testament. James B. Adamson says here that the epistle of James, rightly approached and understood, takes us better than any other New Testament book back to the infancy of the Christian church, to the purple dawn of Christian enthusiasm and the first glow of Christian love, closed quote. So these are the early days. The church is almost entirely Jewish, though the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have just completed their first missionary journey into Gentile territory. When we get to chapter 2, we will talk about the different emphases that Paul has speaking to Gentile converts and James has speaking to Jewish converts. They're presenting the, the different sides of the same gospel coin, and therefore reading this letter alongside Paul's letter to the Galatians gives us our best window into the beauty, energy, struggles, and tensions of the early church. Thanks be to God. With all that being said, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word to us. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, I want to pause here in order to explain that strange greeting. Who are these twelve tribes in the dispersion? That's a very good question. J. Alec Machir says here, To answer this question, we must follow the straight line from the Old Testament into the New. Our Lord Jesus chose out twelve apostles and looked forward to the day of his own glory, when they would sit on twelve thrones, ruling the twelve tribes of Israel. In doing this, he was not creating a new Israel, either alongside or replacing an old Israel. He was leading the Israel of the old covenant on into its full intended reality as the Israel of the new covenant, the apostolic people of our Lord Jesus Christ, those whom Paul calls the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. In a word, Israel is the name of the people of Jesus. It is the true and inalienable title of his church, closed quote. So this is not replacement theology. The church doesn't replace the Jews. James is saying this to an almost entirely Jewish church. What he's saying is that in Christ, the church has begun to do what God said that it would do. It is beginning to grow and expand in order to make room for the nations. This is exactly what James said at the Jerusalem council. 
which may well have taken place just a few weeks after he wrote this letter. After hearing the missionary report of Paul and Barnabas, James said, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He's quoting from Amos 9.11 there, which was a prophecy in the Old Testament about how one day in the future, God would raise up the fallen and trampled house of David and restore it and repair it in order to make room for the Gentiles. This is that, James says at the Jerusalem Council. The church is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So now James is writing to the church, the restored, renewed, and expanded house of David. Thanks be to God. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Obviously, James has never heard of the prosperity gospel. He's never heard about how Christians are supposed to be living their best life now and enjoying perfect health and perfect peace. Thank the Lord, James has never heard about that. On the contrary, James says that we should rejoice when we face various trials because these things are the God-ordained means of our growth and maturation. Be thankful that God knows how to complete his work. His work began in you at conversion, but it continues in you through various trials, hardships, and testings. He puts you in the fire, James says. Then he gives you the grace to grow, persevere, and overcome. Let that process do its work so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's a mature perspective, which is why he goes on to say in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's important to note the actual context here for this promise about wisdom. It is specifically the promise that wisdom will be given to allow the believer to understand his or her difficulty as a gift from God towards the ultimate end of Christian maturity. It can be very difficult to maintain that perspective on our suffering. And so if the believer is struggling, he or she should pray, and God will provide help to maintain a faithful outlook. Machir defines the double-minded person as someone whose allegiance is not committed either way. Such a person isn't sure whether they want to live for this world or the next. And their prayers are really an attempt to have their cake and eat it too. Such a person should expect nothing from God. But if your prayer is an honest one, and if it reflects a desire to serve God in this life and in the life to come, then you should pray and expect that God will give you what you have asked for, or what you would have asked for, had you been able to see things from God's perspective. Verse 9. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The connecting theme here is James's desire for us to see things as they really are. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is seeing the world through the lens of what is actually true. It is seeing the world through the knowledge of God, the knowledge of ourselves, and the knowledge of grace. So he has talked to us about the wise way to see our trials. And here he's talking about the wise way to see our station in life. He addresses the poor and the rich alike. The poor should be focused on their actual exaltation. If he or she is a child of God through faith in Christ, then they're rich. Likewise, the rich should be thankful to have been brought low enough to see the doggy door to the kingdom of heaven. That's what really matters. Calvin says beautifully here, since it is incomparably the greatest dignity to be introduced into the company of angels, nay, to be made the associates of Christ, he who estimates this favor of God aright will regard all other things as worthless. Closed quote. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Further to the issue of correctly perceiving our various trials, James speaks here about their origin. It would be wrong to say that God is the author of temptation. God cannot be tempted, and he does not tempt anyone. God ordains and designs certain trials, and those trials often become the occasion of temptation, but that is not the intention or purpose of God. Tim Keller has likened this to the experience of taking a school exam. The test has been designed to assess your progress, and the intention of the school administration is for this test to encourage you to study more and to prepare better and to gain some mastery of the subject matter. That's their purpose. And I think we would all agree that's a benevolent purpose. And yet many of us have had the experience of failure as a result of doing poorly on a test. Perhaps we didn't prepare. Perhaps we weren't ready The failure, then, is our responsibility, despite the wise and good purposes behind the test. So it is with God. God means for these tests to drive us deeper into him and to make us more aware of our need of grace. He also intends for these tests to provide an opportunity for the display of our progress and for the proclamation of the gospel. And yet, inside each test is an opportunity for us to fail for us to lose faith, for us to complain and become bitter or to capitulate to the wicked suggestions of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's how sin happens, James says. Inside a trial, a suggestion arises. James says simply, from the flesh. 
If that suggestion is nurtured in the heart, it inevitably gives birth to sin, and sin, when full-grown, gives birth to death. That's why we have to fight sin at the level of suggestion, at the reception of the desire. Luther said that we can't keep the birds from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from making a nest in our hair. That's what it means to fight sin at the level of suggestion. If that suggestion finds purchase in the heart, it will eventually give birth to sin and death. But that suggestion does not come from God. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's gifts are good, James says. God's word gives birth to life, not sin. Therefore, verse 19, know this, my beloved brethren. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The wise person leans into the word of God. That's the immediate referent for that saying about being quick to listen. While there is general wisdom in being quick to listen, period. The specific referent here is to being quick to listen to the word of God. That's where life happens. Suggestions unto death come from the flesh, but suggestions unto life come from the word of God via the spirit of God. So be eager to listen to those, be so responsive to those, and put to death entirely the lusts of the flesh. That's what James is saying here. Keep your heart like the soil of the parables, eager to receive the implanted and saving word. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The blessing of the word comes not to the mere hearer of the word. The blessing comes to those who do. We make far too great a distinction in contemporary Christian circles between being and doing. The Bible blurs those lines and, and says that we are what we do, and we do what we are. And we see some of that blurring here. The blessing of God is upon those who hear and respond. Again, we think of the soft soil people from the parables of Jesus. They, the, the hear it, grab it, do it, apply it people. Those people are blessed in their doing. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If the seed takes root in your heart, change will show up in your mouth, James says. If it doesn't, then it didn't. This is wisdom. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, if the seed has taken root in your heart, then it will change the way you live your life. You will be noticeably marked 
by things that matter to God. Things like mercy, compassion, charity, and purity. If the seed is alive within you, then these things increasingly will flow out of you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.